0: How you doing, it's David here. We're gonna introduce a new idea called Curious Minds. These are conversations I have with people who are very curious, people with curious minds, people who inquire about the world, people who've made a huge difference in their field. Now, luckily over years, because I've been a sort of a traveling economist doing all sorts of odd things, I've met and been really lucky to meet these amazing thinkers and writers and economists who think slightly more laterally than most. And I'm going to bring you these conversations. And the idea is we're going to bring to you people who will make you think, ideas that will make you sit up and listen, and angles that you probably never thought about. And I hope you enjoy them. I have certainly enjoyed meeting these people, and I can't wait for you to meet them too. And I'm delighted to say my first chat is with the fantastic New York Times bestseller, New York Times columnist, Mr. Tom Friedman.
2: Tom Friedman, we're delighted to have you. Great to be with you, David. Great to be in Dalkey at this festival. It's been fantastic. Have you been enjoying yourself? Wonderful.
0: I want to start from your journalistic hat. You've been writing for 40-odd years. How has journalism changed not just under Trump, but in the last four or five years, let's say?
2: Well, uh, in, in a lot of ways. Let me begin by just talking about my kind of journalism, why I went into journalism, because a lot of people go into journalism for different reasons. I mean, everyone does. Some want to be investigative reporters, some want to be business reporters, some want to be economic writers, sports writers. Um, uh I went into journalism because when people ask me what I do for a living, I tell them I'm a translator from English to English. So I like to take really complex subjects like technology or globalization and translate them first into English that I understand with the hope that I can then help other people understand it. And actually that's my form of idealism, David. It may not sound very idealistic, but in the kind of age we're in right now, an age of enormous complexity where the world's so interdependent, we're all being affected by one another. I live by something Marie Curie once said, now is the time to understand more so we may fear less. See, there's a lot of people now in the fear generation business, and there's a lot of journalists in the business of making people stupid. In fact, I would argue we have a whole network in America devoted to that task called Fox News. I actually believe that if you can make the world comprehensible for people, they will fear less, and therefore they'll be less susceptible to the demagogues and the populace want them to fear more so that's kind of why i went into the business now i actually started as a journalist on fleet street um i w- did went, you? I, I, I I went to graduate know, school I Oxford. You, you yeah. did the, the london connection yeah so i started on fleet street for united press international in 1978 and i actually started on a device called a typewriter. I don't know if your listeners know, but this was a device where if you press the keys, it created pressure on a roller and it it actually created a letter on the roller and paper. And that's how you produce your journalism. And I tell you that because when I was sent off by UPI in 1979 to Beirut, the way we filed our stories in from Beirut, which was my first foreign assignment, was you had to write your stories three paragraphs at a time, hand them to a telex operator, and she would then punch it into Telex tape and then send it on to New York, or in our case, London, UPI, and then it was distributed around the world. Try writing a story three paragraphs at a time um, on on deadline. Okay. So actually, the way you had to do it was I would write three paragraphs. Uh, I actually write through, excuse me, the whole story. I'd write the all 800 or 900, 1,200 words. Then once I knew what it was about, I would write it through again. Then once I knew I had the story, I would write it through again three paragraphs at a time. And that's how you had to do it, and it was a real challenge. Of course, there was no spell check, there was no move graph, and you're in Beirut. That is
0: the age of Tippex, I remember. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. <the> that's <laughs> right.
2: Changing, uh, wh- whiting out things. So, so I've I've actually lived. I actually started. You know, the typewriter lasted for a hundred years, um, and uh, from about um, seventeen. Uh, sorry, sorry. From, from about eighteen uh, seventy till about. 19 late 1970s. So I was at the very end of the typewriter age. And of course, at the beginning of first the computer age and then the internet age. And so I've lived the entire span of these technologies. And in a way, my career is a metaphor for what's happening in the workplace. And We can talk about this more. That is, you know, for our parents, grandparents, and great-grandparents generation, um, the steam engine basically lasted 100 years. So You had one technology for that that 100 years, and multiple generations lived through that same technology, you, your parents, and your grandparents. The same was true of electrification. But what's happening today is that now digitization, I've gone from that typewriter to a desktop, laptop, uh, cell phone, watch, okay, chatbot, you know. So now it's the technology changes multiple times Um, within your lifetime. And therefore, adapting to those multiple changes in technology is not only a challenge for every journalist, it's obviously a challenge for every worker today.
0: And then let's look at, because we've got to get on to workers, because obviously this has all got massive ramifications for how people live, how people listen to the podcast, how they're working. You know, people are, they've got their buds in on the train, they're listening, they're going into jobs which didn't exist. Not 10 years ago didn't exist in many cases in Dublin two or three years ago. And that's gonna change and multiply all the time. Tell me about, before we talk about technology, to what extent do you think it's the technology has driven the change in the messaging, i.e. driven the change in
2: journalism? There's no question, you know, that with one of these cell phones that I'm holding now in my hand, my my Apple uh, iPhone, I immediately become a reporter a paparazzi, and a filmmaker. Now, when everyone is a reporter, paparazzi, and filmmaker, everyone else is a public figure. And so um, it's brought so many more voices into journalism. That's a fantastic thing. That's the upside. You can now decide, I'm going to be a foreign correspondent in Beirut. I'm just going to send myself there. And I'm going to start Tom Friedman's Beirut blog. And if it's good, it'll get around. And maybe there'll be a podcast. And then maybe, if I'm lucky, the Irish Times or the Washington Post will notice my stuff and say, we want you to work for us. Back in the day when I was starting, that was much harder. It was not impossible, but it was harder. You had to get on with the Irish Times and be their foreign correspondent or the AP or the New York Times, or the yep. Chicago Tribune, et cetera. So on the one hand, the field is much more open. On the other hand, there's so many voices that establishing your authority— through all those voices can be very very challenging so many podcasts now so many blogs so many absolutely yeah and uh that's one thing one real negative side of what's going on in my view is twitter so i'm not a twitter fan i've actually i have no facebook page i've never looked at facebook i have no idea what it looks like um wow uh, i never looked at facebook i've never looked at facebook i have no idea what it looks like i've never looked at twitter now, Twitter sends me stuff on my phone. But you're on Twitter, but that's for professional reasons. That's right. The New York Times tweets my column, and I tweet my column. Yeah. And if you come to me and say, Tom, will you tweet this podcast? I will do it. But I actually don't know how to do it, so my assistant, Gwen, will do it, okay? So I don't look at Twitter. I don't look at Facebook. I know who my friends are. They're not a thumb up and a thumb down. And anything you say about me in a 240 carries anonymously, I don't care about. So, okay. So uh, I'm sure I'm missing something. Maybe not. But here's, what, not. here's what I'm not missing, Abe. Good for your sanity. Because I'm not on Twitter, everybody likes me. In my world, everybody likes me, okay? (laughs) Okay. Yeah. So So you're troll-free. I'm troll-free. So because of that, why is that important? I've been to the Middle East and talked now, because I was the New York Times bureau chief in Israel and in Beirut. These are hotly contested, controversial stories. I've talked to reporters there, and they say, Tom, I come back from covering the Israel-Palestinian fight on the Gaza front, and I'm being eaten alive on Twitter. And I tell them, guys, I'm begging you, I'm down on my knees and I'm begging you, don't go there. Only dragons live there. And so if you are trying to report a story and you're always in the back of your mind, oh, if I say this, the Palestinians are going to eat my liver. If I say that, the Israelis are going to carve my heart out. You got to just write. And that's what I do. I'm Being a columnist is not a friend growth industry. No, and it you, is not, because you've, you've got to provoke. You've been around me a lot, enough now to know. I, I don't really walk around worried what people say about me, okay? No. I've written a lot of really controversial things. And I got a postcard when I started as a journalist. It was from one of my predecessors, Tom Wicker, who's a famous New York Times columnist uh, in the 60s. And it was the best advice I ever got. He said, never afraid, be afraid to be wrong. Otherwise, you'll never be Right. That is so, extremely good advice. So, David, I've jumped into some empty pools and I banged my head. Okay, you're going to do that, um, but I'm not sitting around gauging the wind, trying to figure out where I'm going to be popular. And so, I provoke a lot of harsh reactions from people. I, I I know that I'm not a fool not to know what's being written or said about me, and that's fine. I didn't. I want to. I want to get people to be challenged to think. And I'm not indifferent to criticism. I mean, it filters its way to me. Sure. And I'm always thinking about it. But I'm not approaching the story by saying, where's the crowd here? And how do I align myself this way or that? And unfortunately, with all this technology now, there's way too much of that. The other thing that's terrible is that the most email list. So we have the most emailed item in the New York Times. You can tell every 15 minutes. We have the most popular. These are the things that people are reading in the New York Times. And every journalist, columnist, food writer, um, or reporter wants to be at the top yeah, of the you most want to, email you list. Want to be, yeah, that's... Hey, honey, look, I'm at the top of the most email list. Yeah. I'm, I'm number the, one. I'm number one. But I can tell you exactly how to get to the top of the email list. Write a negative story about Donald Trump. In the New York Times, I promise you, you're, you're going you're, you're to go, go near the top, okay? Well, you, and I'll tell you how to get to the bottom of the email list. Go to Venezuela and write a really complicated story about Venezuela. So all the incentives This is now, fascinating. The incentives yeah. that the message so we're sending clickbait, me to journalists clickbait, clickbait, clickbait all the time. Is, and re, re, right.
0: re reappraise me of my own prejudices exactly, and I'll right. think and you're a fantastic And especially person.
2: if you write for a left of center online publication like the New York Times, so you attack Trump, you'll go to the top of the list. And I'm not accusing anyone of doing that deliberately. We all should attack Trump. Um, he's a terrible person. I'm just saying when you do that, you then think you're actually doing your job because we've created an incentive system that says you got a lot of clicks. But in fact, you're not writing about Venezuela or you're not writing about the EU. Now, Americans will do anything for the European Union except read about it. But I happen to believe (laughs) that the European Union is incredibly important. I think it's the other United States of the world. It's the other great center of free markets and free people and free ideas. It's the other great center of liberty in the world. I'm a huge EU fan. So I wrote about it a couple of years ago. And to fool the search engine, I called my column Trump's EU. Okay, just so so people would, (laughs) so the search engine would pick up on it, you know what I mean? And the way you go. You're right, and so, but but these are the things you shouldn't have to do. Tom, one thing in
0: Thank You for Being Late, your latest book, which I devoured before Christmas, and, and, and loved, but there's a chart which shows, and this is, you're talking about the search engine and technology, and you're talking about, obviously, Moore's Law and the incredible speed of change in technology over the last five or six years, and it's ongoing. But there's a chart where you have a graph that shows humans' ability to adapt, our ability to adapt to change, and the rate at which technology adapts is changing. And you show that technology is changing at such a rate that we can't physically, emotionally, mentally, psychologically adapt to this age of acceleration please tease this out a bit for sure. well, me. Sure. Because I love the a let idea. Start with, with an v- actual fact, it was my wife, and we, we were talking to, to to our son and mm. our daughter about this, and they both said, and they're, they're teenagers, so they're not really conscious of the technology around them. It, it just really is. It's a partisan it extension is. of them, yeah. yeah. But Sean was saying, look, you know, to this guy talking about yourself. This guy was talking about, Tom Friedman was sure. talking about this. And both the teenage kids said, that's a really interesting idea. Mm. So explain this a wee bit.
2: So let me start with an example Um, and then talk about the actual graph. So when I was working on my book, I interviewed Sebastian Thrun. Sebastian founded a company called Udacity. It's one of the two big online learning platforms, Coursera and Udacity. And when I wrote my book, he told me that Google had just released TensorFlow, which is, it's a machine learning algorithm. So you want to program uh, machines to do machine learning, it's called, you do it in TensorFlow. And he told me that Udacity had an online course on TensorFlow, up 30 days after Google released it. Did Trinity College in Dublin have, have a course. course on TensorFlow?
1: Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot,
0: we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you.
1: From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com/wondersuite. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music. For all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free. Or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.
2: TensorFlow, where I
1: teach. Exactly.
2: Okay. In 30 days.
1: No way. Now no, I was... Not in a
0: month of Sundays.
2: Exactly. Not, neither at the University of Minnesota, where I'm from. Okay. Now, I was just out to see uh, Sebastian at Udacity uh, a month ago. He told me Google just released TensorFlow 2.0, and they had a course up the next day. Wow. They actually co-developed it with Google. So what's happening is that our ability to adapt as humans, if we put it on a graph, it has a positive slope. We all adapt. I've adapted, you've adapted, but it's a gradual positive slope. But if you put technology on a graph, it operates at Moore's law, so it's growing at an exponential rate. And eventually, these lines cross, as they have lately. And so technology is now evolving faster than we can evolve ourselves. And therefore, the great challenge, I believe, for parents like you and me, for teachers, for the mayor of Dalkey, for the prime minister of Ireland, is how do we lift the rate of adaptation so our citizens, our kids, our students can learn faster and we can govern smarter to take advantage of these and get the best out of them these new technologies and cushion the worst that is the central political challenge of the day
0: and i think that you you made this really beautiful analogy i want you to tease out a You said, look, had the rate of technological change been replicated in the rate of manufacturing change of a Volkswagen Beetle,
2: something amazing would happen. Put it in the context. So uh, Moore's Law was coined by Gordon Moore in 1965. He's one of the co-founders of Intel. And he argued that the speed and power of microchips would double roughly every 24 months. And the price would stay basically the same. He, He argued that in 1965. And Moore's Law is alive and well today. So think how many doublings that is since 1965. You know, this computer over here, I'm pretty sure it has a Intel 10-nanometer chip in it. It has 100 million transistors per square millimeter. Your eye can't see it. So that, and by the way, they'll tell you just how they're making the seven nanometer chip. So this is this is a rate of exponential growth that that's just incredible. So to, it's very hard to explain. It to, is hard to explain to people. Do you, people what want, does it mean? Yeah, I'm not a techie.
0: I'm not a techie. Again,
2: so so to explain to me and other people who can't grasp this, Intel um, assigned its engineers to take a 1971 Volkswagen Beetle, and imagine all its different capacities that it had doubled all those capacities every 24 months since 1971. What would it be like today? And they calculated that if a Volkswagen Beetle had improved at the rate of Moore's Law, it would go 300,000 miles an hour today. It would get 2 million miles per gallon and it would cost you 4 cents. You'd be able to that actually drive it. You'd actually be able to drive it your entire life on a single tank of gas. Okay, wow. so that's, so the, that's power the power of-, of what's under driving all of this. Therefore, keeping up with this is just an enormous governing challenge. It's an enormous parenting challenge. Now, let me just step back, if I could, uh, David, and talk to you about a little, because this is on the governing point, what I've been doing since my book came out, um, since Thank You for Being Late came out. If you look at the span of, of, of my books, I actually started writing about globalization in the late 1990s. I wrote a book yeah. called I, Lexus Neology. I, I, I read so, it. So um, technology moves up in steps. That is, you get a suite of technologies, they coalesce together, and every step is biased toward a certain set of capabilities. So I would argue that around 2000, a set of capabilities, technological capabilities, came together around connectivity. And that was because of the uh, dot-com boom, bubble, and bust collapsed the price of fiber optic cable. And we accidentally wired the world. Honey, I didn't mean to, but I shrunk the world, okay? And so we woke up one day, around 2000, and discovered we could touch people we could never touch before, and we're being touched by people who could never touch us before. I once called my mom and interrupted her on, um, uh, in, in the middle of, of the day, and she told me I was, I was interrupting her because she was playing bridge on the Internet with someone in Siberia. I so, love it. Okay, so I, my mom was touching someone. in Minnesota. in Minnesota, unimaginable, touching and being touched. And I came along, and I gave that moment a name. I said, it, it feels like the world is flat. And I wrote a book called The World is Flat right around then. Well, I would argue around 2007, we took another step up. And that was thanks to big data, AI, a lot of other things. Another suite of technologies came together, and they were biased toward complexity. That is, what these technologies did was make complexity. If if the first one that made The World is Flat made connectivity fast, free, easy for you, and ubiquitous, in 2007, we birthed a new set of technologies that made complexity Fast, free, easy for you, and invisible. Suddenly, on my cell phone, now with one touch, I could page a taxi, direct a taxi, pay a taxi, rate a taxi, and be rated by a taxi, all with one little touch. We abstracted massive amounts of complexity everywhere, okay, including podcasts. And suddenly, the world became fast. We could move so many things because we just took friction out of so many things. Now, I would argue since then, we're now in 2019. So you're going to say to me, Tom, that 2007 you talked that was a long time ago. Where are we now? So my wife is building a language museum in Washington, D.C. It's called Planet Word, be the world's first language museum. And she loves to come home every year. She's a word person. And tell me what the word of the year is. Because online dictionaries can now track the word of the year. So a couple of years ago it was they, transgender people, don't want to be called he, she wanna be called they. Last year, the word of the year in Webster's Merriman was justice. Justice. The most looked-up word on Webster's Merriman was justice. Now I'm going to tell you and your listeners, David, what the word is the year for 2019. You can close the contest now. And the word of the year is going to be deep. As in deep fake, deep state, deep surveillance, deep learning, deep insight. Deep thought, deep mind. Do you notice how many things we're describing with the adjective deep? And that's because these technologies yeah, why, why is this? that I talked about of connectivity and complexity becoming free are now going deep, okay? And now it's about all the things you can do with no touch. <laughs> Tom, it's Siri. You have an appointment with David McWilliams at 2.30 in Dalkey. No touch. That's pushed to me. It's gone deep. Now I would argue that all these things are going deep. So I did a column recently, and this is a huge governing. Challenge. Yeah, because I want to. want to get so on. I'll, quite so well. I'll explain. Like,
0: no, because the, the implication when you look at so we're talking about all this, right? I'm thinking about how I was educated, where I live, how I get around, how I talk to my my own mama's 84? She's yeah. down at the festival. All of these are defined by technologies and ideas of technologies that were really enshrined 40 years ago. Right. But what you're talking, and therefore our politics is enshrined 40 years ago, and our sense of community, our sense of ethnicity, our sense of how we fit into the world as individuals is enshrined by laws and systems of governance and systems of comprehension that are actually predate all this.
2: exactly. So I'll So, I'll, I'll give you an example. So... I did a column um, a couple months ago with the College Board, the people who do the SAT and PSAT exams in the States. Those are our college entrance exams. And they had decided that there are many things every high school student should know, they decided. But they decided there were two things every high school student must graduate knowing. They called them their two codes, how to code a computer and the code of the U.S. Constitution. And Mark Zuckerberg, founder of Facebook, is a walking, breathing, living example of someone who took the first course and not the second okay so what so he he's gone really deep into your life he knows everything about you he knows stuff about you you don't even know patterns in your life and yet the norms standards rules and regulations to govern Facebook and how much it knows about David McWilliams That we are totally lagging behind because there's no Moore's law for morality. So we're living in a complete mismatch now between the depth at which technologies are going into our lives, Cambridge Analytics and uh, Facebook and Google, and the governance of these technologies, which so are lagging behind. And that, I believe, is a central governing challenge. It goes back to our beginning, how these things are mismatched. The technology moves faster, but now it's moving faster than the morality. And we're now living with that mismatch. And do you
0: think the mismatch between technology and morality is finding its expression in current
2: politics? Absolutely. So you see all these people now, we see it, let's go back to our Twitter, people using Twitter um, in ways that aren't just abusive, but now dangerous, you know. And what laws... Your president using Twitter. our president. But let's just take the story of Facebook and Nancy Pelosi. Is it legal that you should be able to do a complete fake video of Nancy Pelosi giving an address? Is it legal for me to fake you? I'm going to do a fake podcast. I'm David McWilliams, and I believe crazy shit. Okay? Yeah. All right? I mean, yeah. Okay. Well, I mean, many people who know me would say, I do believe crazy shit. Okay. But there you go. But, it's, uh, but yeah. so, so we haven't even figured out the most basic things. Can I fake you? That's like a pretty basic thing. Yeah. Um, and technologically, we, and te- can. And technologically, I can, but legally, can I? Well, you see Facebook wrestling with it, they wouldn't take down a fake video of Nancy Pelosi. Um, so then so what had happened? Somebody went out and did a fake video of Mark Zuckerberg. And they said, well, we're not going to take that down either. Uh, they said, we're going to change the algorithm so fewer people will see that. Well, that's like the New York Times saying, well, we wrote a fake story about David McWilliams, but we're just going to put it back in the sports section. Fewer people will see it. What in the world yeah. are you talking about? You know what I mean? So we have a mismatch between people's ability to code and their understanding and of the, the implications of, of the constitution. Of the constitution. Yeah. So
0: where does this bring us politically? Economically, we can talk about but politically, I'd like to conclude, Tom, politically, where does this bring us? Because we have all sorts of consequences of this mismatch, uh, finding expression in all sorts of economic and political instability
2: and in movements. Where do you think this is going? I don't think the answer is in politics. I think the answer is in family. I think it's in church, synagogue, mosque, temple. Um, The reason my book is called Thank You for Being Late, because the subtext is that the faster the world gets, the more crazy fast these technologies get, the more everything old and slow matters more than ever. All the stuff you cannot download, all the stuff you have to upload the old-fashioned way. By David and Shian being good parents, to good children, by teacher to student, by pastor to good flock, by government official to good citizen. It's all the old stuff, face to face, because there's no algorithm for this. And it's building values around community, faith organizations, civic organizations, dalky book festivals, all the old slow stuff matters more than ever. And that's why my book is called Thank You for Being Late.
0: Uh, well, that was an absolute pleasure. Uh, Tom Friedman, we could talk all day, but the little gems that you offered me there and us, the the the, the whole David McWilliams podcast community, such as it is, uh, thank you so much for being with us.
2: Really a pleasure. Thank you for bringing me to document.
0: Thanks very much for listening. I hope you enjoyed it. Now, before we let you go, I want to give you a sneak preview of some premium content which you can access via Patreon.
3: I think there's something... We ought to hear from the silent Trumpers. These are the people who never tell you, but they vote Trump. And when you look at what are they about, and interestingly, the numbers of African-Americans and particularly African-American women who voted in favor of Trump was much larger than anyone ever imagined possible. And what I think it is, their view is, Washington is a drag on the economy. Washington raises taxes, Washington has rules and regulations, and it's a drag on my ability to generate income from my family. And so they say, I don't like what he stands for, I don't like what he says, but his policies benefit my business. Those people will go, I'll hold my nose because that outcome is better for my ability to put food in the refrigerator. And I think with populism, we are, focusing too much on the person and not enough on one of the underlying causes because the people who represent the populist view will come and go. But if this pressure that I can't feed my family, I can't get food in the refrigerator persists, then populism will persist.
0: If you enjoyed that, you can hear the full episode and much more by joining us on Patreon, which is patreon.com forward slash David McWilliams. See ya.
3: So book your next getaway with Club Med. Visit clubmed.us or call 1-800-CLUB-MED or your travel advisor. In manufacturing, you need to automate intelligently to compete effectively. But not all automation solutions are created equally. AGVs and AMRs driven by Bluebotics Ant technology offer robust, accurate performance and native interoperability because your material handling can be smarter. Visit antdriven.com. That's driven.com to learn more.